Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? One of our very first guests on Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller is back. Jolly Good Ginger has millions of followers who listen to his words and rants about racism. Born in the mountains of North Carolina, Jolly was raised not just around racists, but by them. He talks to white people about owning racism and what to do about it. He has become a huge internet sensation. Since we've seen him last, he has his own TED Talk and lots in the works. We can't wait to delve in. Welcome back, Jolly. Hey, guys. How you doing? Doing well. You're excited to be back? Yes. I just want to add an extra welcome back. And, you. you know, we've been connected since the last podcast, as Susie said, you've been doing so much. We've got our own thing going on, which is pretty exciting. But I want to start with your TED Talk. Talk about what that was like. Give us some specifics um, on it. Well, there's a lot of story to be told there. So they reached out to me. I forget when. It was like November or something. They reached out to me and asked the people that were organizing the TED Talk really wanted to know if I would be a speaker. And I was like, yeah, that's obviously, I'd be honored to have that platform. But I still had to go through the process that everybody else has to go through, which is the interview process and you know all that good stuff. So I did that and it was a pretty lengthy process. And then I think January or February, they told us, hey, you've been selected. I think it was January. You've been selected and we want you to give a TED talk. So then you had to write a rough draft which was number one, the biggest obstacle for me because they want me to talk about, well, I wanted to talk about, I apologize. I wanted to talk about white supremacy and what white America should be doing to battle it. But then they told me it's an 18 minute talk. I said, wait a minute, how do I have this conversation in 18 minutes? So that was the hardest part. They said 2,500 words is typically the length and my rough draft was 4,000 words. So I had to narrow that. (laughs) I had to narrow that down. But I tell you what, and I think you'll find this interesting. I'll tell you what really was a big, I don't know the word to use. I guess what was just shocking to me. It shouldn't have been shocking, but it was. So we go through this process of curation in which all the different speakers are writing their speeches and having it curated. And the, the theme of this particular TED Talk was crossroads. We're at a social crossroads, cultural crossroads in America. Uh, we're changing the way things used to be. And da, da, da. So... One of our early, so they finally posted all the speakers. I didn't know who the speakers were besides myself. And they posted all the speakers. And I looked at the list and the very first thing I noticed is they're all white. And I said, so that's problematic. So I called. I really thought I would be like the only white guy, if anything, because that's really who should be having this conversation is non-white people. But so I called the president of the curation board because I've been speaking to these guys. And I'm like, hey, Raj, like, I just saw the speaker list, dude, everybody's white. That's a problem. He told me, he said, well, we had no non-white people submit. I don't buy that, but let's pretend like that. That's what happened, even though I don't believe it. So I said, listen, I know plenty of people that 
may or may not be able to, you know, put a speech together last minute and make it out. You need some diversity in the speech line. You want to call it, you know, a cultural crossroad. And he was like, okay, well, who you got in mind? And I gave him a few ideas and he reached out to them and they submitted. And do you know, he, the curation board said it was too last minute and, and the speeches would need too much work and they just would hold off. And a couple of these people were like PhDs, like they can write a speech, bro, like relax. And so long story short, they're going to keep the same speakers. So my initial plan was to boycott. Like I was going to give my speech like normal. And then right at the end, I was going to call the whole TED platform out on it. But people close to me was like, you know, that kind of defeats the whole purpose of getting your message out because they're never going to air your message. So I was kind of stuck at this, like, I don't know the word. Moral. Your own crossroad. My own personal crossroad, right, exactly. So I just went ahead and gave the speech as normal because I'm more interested in getting the message out. But it, it really, I was unhappy. So I let the TED people know when I got to New York and I did, during rehearsals, I let them know. The day of the speech, I let them know, I just was unhappy with how they put it together. As far as the your specific message, were you happy the way it all came together? I was actually, I was very happy. I tried to stick to, you know, the what I would call the meat and potatoes. That was the hardest part was 18 minutes. But my message was, you know, white people have heard the things that I'm talking about. You know, there's a lot of white people I've heard on my platform and other places tell me, well, I wasn't raised as radical as you. Not everybody was raised as radical as you. Yeah, you were. I mean, you were. You just were. Like every white person has heard racial jokes, has heard the racial stereotype. Every white person has been told that's the bad part of town. Be careful over there. Hey, they'll jump you. Like we've heard this in some way, shape, or form, in some quantity or another, some people more than others, but we've all heard it. And the vast majority of white people pretend like it doesn't exist and they want it to just go away. And, and the ironic part of the whole thing is that a lot of white people think that the world or America is now targeting white people. And my whole message is like, hey, if you feel like America can target you, and I have proof that it did target this entire other group. Can't you at least believe that happened and we can now fix it? Like, and that was kind of the message. And so what do you think of their response when you brought this to their attention? That you're talking about crossroads and no people of color. I really felt like they knew what I was talking about and they knew it was a problem, but it was too much work to fix it. Which is the theme of white America. Bingo. You know, it's too much. I can opt out. I can turn it off today. I don't want to feel those feelings. Right. Bingo. Exactly. You know, and it was just unfortunate, but I was very happy to be able to, you know, on on their YouTube platform, they got 34 million subscribers. So I was happy to be able to put a message out there on a platform like that. Various schools and universities used. There was a university professor at the talk. Afterwards, came up to me and said, I'll be playing your speech in my classroom. I said, OK, I, I appreciate that. So I'm happy that the message is going to get out. Yeah, but that's great. You no, know, I think, like he says, you hit the nail on the head. It was a microcosm of what is America, you know. So, you know. So I know, Susie, went to a fundraiser you had in California. Can you talk about AFTP and the Families United? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Jacob Blake Sr. and Bianca Austin. Jacob Blake Sr. is the father of Jacob Blake Jr., uh, who was shot in the back seven times by Kenosha PD. And Bianca Austin is the aunt of Breonna Taylor, who was killed by a Louisville Metro PD uh, in her own apartment. And they 
got together shortly after Breonna Taylor's murder and decided that they wanted to help families that was going through tragedies like what they were going through. And they started a group called Families United. Because at the end of the day, when the police murder your loved one, nobody gives you a checklist. Nobody says, all right, here's what you do next. You know, In fact, if you talk to a lot of these families, the families will tell you the police and the local government won't even talk to them. It's like us versus them. And so what Families United does is shows up, provides emotional support, but also gives you that checklist. Hey, here's what you do next. Where are you at in this process? Okay, here's some resources that we have, et cetera. And that's what Jake and Bianca started was that group. And then me and Jake uh, happened to be at a podcast together in Charlotte. And he enjoyed my message and the way I spoke right afterwards. He said, man, I like you. I want you to come with me. And me and Jake have been friends ever since. I spoke at his, uh, at the one year commemoration for his son being shot. And uh, shortly after I joined the board of directors uh, as an executive director for Families United. And we've been traveling the country. We travel a lot. Uh, The thing in LA you're talking about was amazing. Susie will tell you that room was packed. So what we did in LA was we planned a three-day trip because LAPD is one of the deadliest you know, terrorist forces in America. And there is a lot of families in LA that lost loved ones to the police terrorism. And so what we did was we connected with AFTP, which is always for the people, headed up by Senate Devermont out there. A lot of guys might know him as Mr. Checkpoint on Instagram. And we linked up with him and we linked up with Laura from Say Their Names LA. And we put it together a three-day event on Saturday, which is the event Susie came out to, the Bourbon Room on Hollywood Boulevard was kind enough to give us their entire theater for free and give us food. Yeah, they didn't charge us nothing. They gave us their whole theater area and a buffet to host all these families. And so what we did was we had all the families, victims of police brutality, come show up. And we did like a five-minute speed dating type concept where one family member from each family sat at a table and another family member from the family would rotate so that all the families got a chance to meet each other, tell their stories. We had like some prompts up on the screen on the stage where they could, you know, questions that would be good to ask and just learn about each other's family. It was super powerful. The family said it was the, and we had about 50, I think it was 56 families there. The family said it was the most healing thing that they had done since losing their loved one. It was very powerful. Wait, Russ, Russ, wait a minute, Russ, let me ask you a couple questions. So that was a genius format to have them rotate around. That was a great idea. It was a way to create some, like an interpersonal experience. So that was, that was amazing. What a great concept. So I want to, I want to acknowledge that. And also how did you reach out to 50 families? Uh, Say their names, LA. I mean, all credit goes to say their names, L.A. and Senate Devermont. Families United, we just showed up and everybody thanked us for showing up. And I was like, what are you thanking us for? These guys put it together. So yeah. Laura, out in say their names, L.A. She, Laura is amazing. Laura doesn't get enough credit for what she does. She stays in contact with so many families in L.A. She goes to so many rallies and protests and she organizes so much stuff that the families there really respect her. And when she reached out to them and said, hey, we're doing this event at the Bourbon Room the families just showed up, you know? So uh, we had that room packed. It was powerful. The chairman came through, chairman uh, Fred Hampton Jr. came through. And then, you know, obviously we had family of George Floyd, family of Jacob Blake, family of Brown Taylor was all there. And they also rotated and spoke to everybody. It was very powerful. I mean, I, I wasn't even, I, I wasn't at a table and I wasn't rotating, but I was crying, you know? Yeah, how can you not if being in that right. room? So say what AFTP stands for again. I want to make sure everybody gets 
always for the people. It's funny because he started the Always Film the Police Foundation, but he wanted to do stuff that was actually right. And he wanted to start another foundation for the families of police brutality. And so he just kept the Always Film the Police acronym and made it Always for the People. Oh, that's great. That's great. Okay. And so when you all were out there and all the families were together, you had this, you know, sort of cathartic experience for the families. Then what? Will they stay connected? What's the next step? Yes, we've stayed connected. We've tried to, you know, work with individual families. I've linked up certain families with other people out there in LA who's helped, you know, organize protests. And yeah, we just want to, we want to, we're families united. We want to make it united across the country. We continue to help each other. It's got to be one unified voice. On Sunday, the day after that event, we met up at the Burlington Coat Factory where Valentina, which coincidentally I'm wearing her shirt. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's but, she was the 14-year-old girl that was shot by LAPD in Burlington Coat Factory. And so was Daniel Lopez. Daniel Lopez, uh, the man that was shot during that event. And there's still no justice. So we held a big rally in the parking lot. We had a bunch of families show up who spoke. It was a super powerful event. We had art, local artists come out. We had local food trucks come out. And they all did everything was donated services. And then what was really funny or uh, powerful, I should say, is after the rally was over, Laura from Say the Name LA asked me, she said, how should we close up? This is such a powerful rally. How should we close up? I looked back at Burlington. I said, well, I plan on shutting Burlington down. You can go with me if you want. And she goes, okay. And so we had like a truck that we were using for a, a stage and I was kind of emceeing the whole event. So I got up on the stage and I said, listen, guys, this has been powerful, but Burlington's open business as usual. And this young girl and this man was just killed there. They take the money from the community, but they don't do anything to support the community when LAPD kills people in their store. So I'm, I'm going to go shut it down. And it was so powerful because everybody went with me. There was these two ladies. It was the most powerful thing. It brought tears to my eyes. There was these two ladies there. They had lost their sons to police violence. And they're Hispanic mothers, and they don't speak a word of English. And when they came up to speak during the rally, they had a translator. And they were probably 70 years old or, or older. And when we walked in Burlington, those ladies were right in line with his hands held up in the air with their signs. And they followed us all the way through Burlington. Security tried to stop us. We walked right through security. We had a guy with us who was monitoring LAPD uh, radio. They called into LAPD. We got protesters in the store being violent. They always say violent. We weren't being violent. Right. LAPD was called on us, uh, but we did shut Burlington down. They closed for the day. So... I'm getting choked up just hearing about it all because it's so amazing that that movement created action that helped people to feel empowered at the same time. It's so disgusting that it continues and it needs to be, it needs to end. So how much power can you create? How much empowerment can you create in order to end the violence, police violence against people from the global majority? It's, it's unbelievable. And, you know, I want to talk about, moving forward and what that looks like, because I think you and I had our own corrective and healing experience. And I think it's important to put that out there. So people understand that, you know, when we engage in this work collaboratively with white and black bodies, brown bodies included, it's important to be able to have conversations that facilitate moving forward. I feel like you and I had that. And I just want to acknowledge that here. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's important that we speak like you're talking about, but that people listen. You know, I think a lot of times, I think a lot of times people don't listen. You know, it's it's always defense, defense, defense. And if we as a people are going to get past this, 
you know, historical tradition of white supremacy in this country, then we have to be able to communicate without defensive barriers. You know, I agree with you. And I also, in my own experience, have found that, you know, people now are finding a way to victimize white bodies. You know, we are talking about talking against white bodies instead of white supremacy. And I'll be the first one to say, quite honestly and authentically, it's difficult to have close white friends during this time. It's difficult because I can't have conversations that are honest and that truly represent the pain. And as a result of that, you know, I have to create boundaries that keep me focused on taking care of myself. So I'm appreciative of the fact that you were there for it. I was there for it. And it happened. And I say that again. I agree. And I appreciate that you were honest with me during that interaction because, you know, again, like you said, a lot of people don't feel like they can be honest. And I personally try to make it my goal because I'm, I'm around a lot of people. Jacob Blake mentioned it just a couple of weeks ago. We were, I forget where we were. We were somewhere, Minneapolis or somewhere. He mentioned it because everybody was in the room talking and one of the mothers brought up, she goes, well, you know, white people. And then she stopped and looked at me because she realized what she said. And Jake said, oh, you ain't got to worry about that around Jolly. And I told her, I said, ma'am, speak your truth. I'm not offended. And, and then not enough white people do that. Not enough white people just said, like, we as white people, I, I unfortunately, I cannot truly empathize because I'll never be not white in America. But I can listen without putting defensive barriers up. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I try to simply allow people in my presence to tell their truth. It doesn't matter whether I understand it or not. Right. Just allow people to speak the truth. I think that's an important message. And let's let's shift to some of the stuff that's happening right now. It's just, just unbelievably overwhelming. I mean, you know, trying to be away and the idea of taking a timeout is a privilege. There's no timeout when you're, the color of your skin is seen as a weapon. And there's no taking a timeout when you continually be traumatized. You're continually traumatized on a daily basis by what's happening in society, both you know, in the world. It's not just America, it's in the world, but our focus is in America right now. And when you hear the story about Melissa Lucio, you know, it's heartbreaking. I saw the documentary and it's like, I just have the question if there, if there really is such a thing as justice in this country, you know? And so you did a call to action that was important because they're going to kill her is what the plan is. And I was wondering if you can update and say where that is right now and what people can do to take that action. Absolutely. So on April 27th is our scheduled execution date. We have a petition going. We're trying to hit 100,000 on the petition. And I want to thank everybody on my social media platform because we're well over, I think, 60,000 right now. So we're trying to hit 100,000. So the, the group in Brownsville, so this occurred in Brownsville, Texas. I encourage everybody to go watch the film that JD is talking about. It's the state of Texas versus Melissa. I believe it's on Hulu or Netflix. Uh, Hulu, it's right? Netflix. Yeah. It might be. I apologize. I actually watched the documentary. I can't remember if it's on Hulu or Netflix, but I'm sure if you look it up, you'll find it. In Brownsville, Texas, where this occurred. So we have a group down there in Brownsville who's going to do a petition drop off. It's going to be a big rally, show up, drop the petition off to the local district attorney. The district attorney, the district attorney has the unilateral authority to stop the execution. Uh, the district attorney has said he will not do so unless the state representative of the governor ind indicate that they want him to. Now, we know the governor of Texas, and he is 
pardon my language, but I don't have better words. He's a piece of shit. And so he has no indication of stopping it. There are state representatives, though, that have on both sides, Democrat and Republican, who are saying, stop this. So we have some hope. And what we're doing as well is this Friday, what's it going to be, the 22nd, we're holding a nationwide rally. So in different cities across the country, we're going to have rally occur at the same time to demand that we free Melissa Lucio just as a way to bring attention to her case, bring attention to her, and hopefully get enough people involved that we can encourage the DA to stop it. And anybody who wants to get involved, call the DA's office, the Cameron County DA in Texas. Uh, the number is on my Instagram. And demand that he stops his execution. And you can also sign the petition. It's in the link tree and all my social media platforms. So just to give people, you know, if they haven't, don't have the time to watch the documentary, this woman, there's proof that she didn't murder her child. There's witnesses, her children are witnesses to the fall that this child took. And because of addiction, they pursued it. And they pursued it in such a way that is completely unfair and unjust. And the woman has been sitting in prison on death row and her family has been at a loss. I mean, they have their own limitation, it appears, for what they're capable of handling. So she's been pretty isolated and on her own. And it's just heartbreaking to see someone, just another victim of the injustice system. Yeah, the child had a a disability that caused her to fall. The the child would fall frequently because there was something wrong with her leg. And she fell on the stairs. Well, initially she was okay. But then two days later, she passed away kind of suddenly. And there was lots of bruising on her body. And they said, well, that's because she was beat to death. And all, all the children said, well, no, our mom doesn't hit us. And there was actually a ton of a thousand pages of a CPS uh, reports because she had not reported the CPS multiple times. And people hear that and they say, oh, well, she's a bad mom. No, she's poor in America. That's why. They try to accuse her of neglect. But you know what? Out of a thousand pages of CPS reports, she was cleared every time. And there's zero history of her hitting her children. Zero history of her hitting her children. And psychologists who study parents that beat their children have said she doesn't even fit the profile of people that hit their children. Right. What we found out through other medical examiners, besides the ones that was involved, have said that when the child fell on the stairs, there was bruising on the back of the brain indicated a, a hit. And that caused her brain to swell up. And caused the blood in her body to stop clotting or to start clotting and stop flowing properly. That's where all the bruising came from. So we have very viable medical explanation to why the child looked the way it looked. And then we have the police who railroaded this mother within 24 hours of losing her daughter. Within 24 hours, her daughter dying, they had her in an interrogation room and interrogated her well beyond any humane perspective and coerced a uh, confession out of her. And it's 100 percent a railroad job. It's 100 percent taking advantage of a poor brown woman in America. Nothing else. Now she's going to be executed for a crime. Well, I'm not going to say that she's not going to be. We're going to stop it. But they're trying to execute her for a crime she didn't commit. And she has, by the way, 13 other children that she now doesn't see, you know. And so it's tragic. And, you know, I just add that the kids and the mother didn't try to hide her challenges with drugs. You know, no. they didn't try to hide it. But, you know, being an addicted is, is not a criminal offense. It's a tragedy that needs to be dealt with in a, in a human, with a human approach. Being poor. It's a disease. Not, it's, it, yeah, it's a disease. And, and being poor should not be criminalized. I mean, they were basically homeless. And 
I think it's fair to say there's some limitations, intellectual limitations, you know, based on a lack of access for this family. And that is used against them. And it's it's inhumane what's happening to her. And what happens, I mean, this is just one of the cases that's brought to light. I mean, the amount of people who are unjustly executed and, you know, in prison for unreasonable amounts of times is it's more than a problem in this country. You yes, know, it too- it's, an it's a pandemic. It's, an I mean, it, it, it's, it's disgusting because CPS is unfortunately 100 percent just a, a weapon of the government that's used to is weaponized against it's weaponized predominantly against Black America and then poor America. And if you're poor and Black, well, you're really in a lot of trouble. Uh, and, and it's disgusting. It's disgusting. And, and I have no words for it. I, I was um, I was beat as a child and CPS removed me from my home twice as a child. A lot of people don't know that about me. But CPS removed me from my home twice. I had bruising from my neck down to my ankles from being beat. The second time I was removed from my home for over a year. But my dad got me back every time. And the point I'm getting at is, you know, CPS is not an efficient system. CPS does not actually care about children. CPS is used as a weapon, depending on the circumstances that's happening in that particular town, with that particular family. You know, if they don't like you, you're going to lose your children, you know. And, and my dad being white, I'm going to go ahead and say it. My dad being white helped him get me back. And he never should have, quite frankly. But, you know, CPS, it does not work. It's just another system. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I'll say it to anybody who will listen. Think of a system that removes children from their families and then pays other people who might not. And in my experience, pretty consistently are ill-equipped to raise children more effectively than the family itself. But they're going to pay them. They're going to pay them to take care of the people's families instead of taking that money and investing it and healing the family itself, giving the family resources they need, case management, staying with the families, removing the abuser, but holding the family system in place, but accountable. How does that make sense? It just has to be white supremacy. It doesn't make sense. Makes no sense. It makes zero sense. And it doesn't work. It's proven over and over and over that it doesn't work. You know, child abuse and child neglect is an epidemic in this country. And that's a separate topic. But I often talk about how, you know, people that our elders tell us all the time, wasn't like that back in my days. Yeah, but the reason that child abuse and child neglect is such an epidemic is because the way you handled it back in your days doesn't work. (laughs) And so, you know, it doesn't work. And CPS is broken. And CPS is, is just another tool of the system of white supremacy that's weaponized against poor black, poor brown America. I don't, you know, I won't even say it's broken, Jolly. I'll say that it's fixed to work exactly the way it does. Yeah, I agree. People are, you know, these, these, even the workers, you know, they're paid a lot of money to be overworked and not be able to handle the amount of cases that they hold. It's 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 impossible to manage the cases they manage. And so you're asking them to do an impossible task for money, you know, that they wouldn't otherwise make and think that that's going to make a just system. That, that doesn't right. correct the wrong. So I'm with you on the fact that it needs it needs overhauling. I got into it with a, a clinician the other day who wanted to talk about the families. And I said, no, let's talk about the system. System yeah. is the problem. It always right. goes back to the system. So, you know, look, there's nothing light about this show we're going to do. I'm not going to lie, but I think it's important. 
So we're gonna we're gonna move forward. Let's talk about the call to action for Jimmy Atchison. Yes, let's please do. So Jimmy, that's a it's actually a disgusting story. Happened down in Atlanta. Very long story short, there was a lady, Kelly Brogan, who she was a booster. So anybody who doesn't know what boosters are, those are people that acquire what are those things called? Pallets, pallets worth of stuff of goods. Yeah. And then they'll sell those goods on the street at cheaper than normal prices. Well, Kelly Brogan had boosted some stuff and was in the process of making a transaction to a couple of guys who robbed her and they took her stuff and didn't give her any money for it. Well, her cousin just so happened to have been dating this guy, Jimmy Atchison. And for whatever reason, I don't know the reason, but Kelly was under the impression that Jimmy would know who those guys were. So she approached Jimmy with this and said, hey, you know, tell me who these guys are to rob me. He's like, I don't know anything about who robbed you. I don't know who those guys can't help you. We, we don't know why she thought he could, but he couldn't. She continually harassed the guy about it multiple times. And then he was like, you know what? Give me your cell phone. Let me use your cell phone real quick. She said, okay, she's going to give me a cell phone so she could use it. But instead, he just walked off with her cell phone and kept it. Now, I don't know if that was out of spite or whatever, but that's all it was. That's the entire interaction. So Kelly Brogan, in an effort to get back at Jimmy, went to Atlanta PD and said that Jimmy stole her cell phone from her at gunpoint, which didn't happen. And there was other people present when that happened. And they gave a testimony to the police. No, that's not what happened. He asked to borrow the phone. She gave it to him and he left with it. Now, I want everybody to keep in mind, this is a fucking cell phone. Like the Atlanta PD, Atlanta of all police departments, has plenty of things going on other than somebody having their cell, cell phone stolen. But for whatever reason, they really wanted to pursue this. And Officer Sung Kim of the fugitive unit, fugitive unit, that's people who chase people who are fugitives of law, went to a judge and convinced the judge that Jimmy Atchison was a danger to society. And that he had a gun, which he didn't. He didn't have a gun. Nobody, no witnesses has ever said he's had a gun. We don't have any proof that Jimmy's ever had a gun. And he doesn't have a criminal record. But somehow they convince a judge he's a threat to society. And they get a warrant for his arrest. And they found out from word of mouth that he was at his ex-girlfriend's house watching his child and her child. The police show up in force, you know, full tactical gear. Jimmy's like, what the hell? He freaks out, jumps out the back window as I think most rational people would freak out. He runs to an adjacent apartment to a lady he knew there, and she lets him hide in her closet. The police come over to the lady's house to track him down to where he went, and they intimidate her and say, hey, if you don't tell us where he's at, we're going to arrest you too, which is not only illegal tactic, but there's no grounds to arrest her. But under threat of duress, she tells him where he's at. They go to the, the closet where Jimmy is, one officer tells Jimmy, don't move. Officer Sun Kim says, come out with your hands up. So literally, we have conflicting commands at that point. Jimmy comes out, hands up. As soon as he puts his hands up, boom. Officer Sun Kim shoots him in the face, kills him. This all started off of what can be proven to be a false push report of a stolen cell phone. Why the fugitive unit wants to chase down Jimmy Atchison is beyond me. And then... Afterwards, so obviously the family's pushing for, you know, charges. And the district attorney at the time 
said that they were going to take this before a grand jury. Now, the reason you didn't hear this on this, this is interesting. The reason you didn't hear this on the news, national news, because Jimmy Atchison should have been big story, was it was the week, I'm sorry, it was the month before the Super Bowl that was being held in Atlanta. And the powers that be in Atlanta came out and said, we don't want this kind of negative publicity. Let's just wait till after the Super Bowl to talk about it. So it got like a 10-minute blurb at the 9 o'clock news, and that was it. And then the DA was going to sit, take it before the grand jury. But in January of 2020, all the grand jury hearings got suspended due to COVID. And right. then by March, by March, everybody shut down. During the time that there, were no, there was holding no hearings, the DA changed. So now it's a new DA. Now it's DA Fannie Willis. Fannie dropped it. When everything started back up, she dropped the case and gave Officer Sun Kim the choice to retire. And he chose, he chose to retire. So now he's drawing benefits. And he now works for the federal government in another law enforcement position. It's disgusting. There's, there's no words. There's none. Other than terrorism. It's terrorism and another reason why I can't endorse sports. They just always seem to be connected in some way to the cover-up or the conspiracy because it, too, is a part of the system. The fact that that happened in Atlanta, yeah, it, it, yeah, I wish I had words. I feel inarticulate at the time. It's just heart-wrenching. And Jimmy, blackmail? Yes. 21 years old. 21 years old. And they did all of that to him. And just for the record, I don't know if people really can wrap themselves around this idea, but the police aren't supposed to kill criminals either. And it's been no. proven that, they, <laughs> you know, like that's not a thing. And it's been proven that they know how not to do that when we go right. back and look at right. terrorists they've arrested. We know that they, they know how to do that. So this is just another disgusting act. Well, look at what just happened in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Well, I was about to go to that next. I was about to go to that next. I we just got in contact with his family today, so we're going to be going to Grand Rapids. But that whole entire thing, did you know? Okay, well, I'll let you go into it first. Sorry, I get ahead of myself. No, I, no, I mean, I just want to say his name. You know, Patrick Laoya. Yeah. And I want to say that um, this was another traffic's, mm -hmm. and I want to add that. I can still see him being murdered and it hits in a way that if you have enough racial identity development, it's conscious every step that you are awake. And if you don't, it lives in your body. So unknown caller. Talk about talk about let me set this off. Talk about uh, what you know, please. So the police pulled him over because his license plate didn't match the car he was in. And when he put him over, Patrick immediately got out of his car and said, hey, what's going on? And the cop said, hey, hey, get back in your car. You know, your license plate don't match. And first of all, it's, it's worth noting that Patrick is uh, a refugee from the Congo, right? He's a Congolese refugee. So, you know, probably reacts a little bit different because what a lot of Americans don't understand is in other countries, people with guns don't just stop you and ask right. you questions. Right. So he was very frantic because we have a physiological response in our body called fight or flight. And when a guy with a gun pulls you over and is literally demanding that you follow his commands, you're going to be frightened, especially if you're not from this country. And so Patrick ran. That right there is where a lot of people are missing the conversation. 
Chicago, and I'm going to give Chicago credit, in 2021, last year, they passed a policy. It's called a, it's a no-foot chase policy. If a, if a suspect runs, and this has been, man, I've been talking about this for 10 years. I'm so glad to see people finally passing. But if a suspect runs on foot, unless they can be deemed to be an immediate threat to society, you let them run. In this case, you got his car. You got the license plate. You got all the stuff in it. Let him run. Run. Now, granted, this was in Grand Rapids where they don't have a police chase policy. They need one. But my whole thing is that needs to be part of police training across the country. Police training needs to be when do you actually need a gun? You don't need a gun. George Floyd, counterfeit $20 bill. We don't need guns. In fact, we don't need police in that situation. Patrick Lyoya, he ran because he was scared. Because that's a natural physiological response. We have to stop training police officers to deal with natural physiological responses negatively. It mm. is very, very natural that people don't want to be locked up. People don't want to put their hands behind their back. People are panicking. People are thinking about what's coming next. I'm going to jail. This is all natural. And if you're going to be a police officer arresting people and you cannot deal with that natural physiological response in a healthy, safe way, don't need to be a police officer. But here's the problem. Police training tells these officers you're always in danger. You're always police. I've read the books, the law enforcement training books, and it literally is basically cover to cover of you're always in danger. You're always in danger. You're always this is beat in their head. Traffic stops are the most dangerous thing to police. Yes, because of the police. You understand what makes it dangerous is your presence. So people say, and I got into an argument with my mother just last month. My mom put something on Facebook about, because my mom supports everything I do. But she put something on Facebook to the effect of not all cops are bad. I said, well, you're wrong, mom. But everybody's allowed to be wrong. And she got to it. She called me. She goes, how can you say all cops are bad? I said, because they are. It's pretty easy. All cops are bad. I have no problem. No, no qualms whatsoever saying that. Because what you're trying to sell me is the good people theory. Yeah, there's good people, but it doesn't matter. They're not a cop until they're trained. A person's a person until they're trained. A cop is an occupation. And we train people to become cops. And the training that we give these people to become cops is why people die. Good people are going to kill people once they're a cop. I don't care if they're a good person. Because during their training, they're told traffic stops are dangerous. If the suspect's not resist or are not cooperating, that's dangerous to you. If they reach in their pocket, that's dangerous to you. If you can't tell what's in their hand, that's dangerous to you. And if you've been told that everything that happens is a threat to your life, you're going to react in response. Cops are reacting, thinking that everything is a threat to their life, and so they think they're saving their own life. No, you're just killing people. The fact is, only about 40 cops die a year. 40! And there's 800,000 cops on the force. I need somebody to show me the statistical, numerical, quantifiable evidence that we're using to train cops that everything's deadly when only 40 of them die a year, whereas a thousand citizens die a year. So the fact that this cop chased Patrick Loyola down, they got, he pulled his taser out, Pat, Patrick grabbed the taser, because that's a natural physiological response not to want to be tased. Patrick was stronger than the cops, so the taser came from the cop's hand. They then fell to the ground. He's yelling, give me my taser, give me my taser from the on top, on top of Patrick Moyer's back. Him. With Patrick his head down. Let's not forget. Yeah. Yeah. Emphasize that. Head down, face to the ground, hand on his, the back of his neck, body on the upper body part of his back. Where is the danger? Where's the danger? You have full control of the situation. 
another thing a lot of people might not know about me, but I practiced Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for many years. I'm actually very well skilled in the craft of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I'm good at it. And one thing you learn in BJJ is dominant positions. And the most dominant position you can have in a fight is someone's back. It is the most, it is the premier dominant position. When you're on the back of someone, you can control the entire fight. So not only was the threat as minimal of a threat as it could be, but the cop, the guy with the gun, was in the most dominant position he could be in. And he still opted to pull his gun out of his holster. And it's, it sickens me to my stomach that, to say this, but he shot that man in the back of the head. That is gross. It makes me want to throw up. I, when I first mm -hmm. saw the video, I, I... Anyway, that's too much. And none of this should happen. You cannot tell me there's good cops because I don't give a fuck. Because we train cops to kill people. That is what we train people to do. Because the cops are told, hey, you want to go home tonight? You're the good guy. Remember that. You're the good guy. And everybody's out to kill you. And that's just factually untrue. So as long as we're training cops across the country that they're always in danger, then this will always be the result. You know, there's nothing more to add to what you're saying other than, you know, incredible grief for this family. And, Absolutely. you know, people say, don't watch the video. It doesn't matter if I watch the video. It, it doesn't matter if I watch the video. The trauma still lives and hits me and attacks me and other people who look like me as if we watch the video because we still remember Emmett Till. We haven't recovered from Emmett Till. So how is, and so when people say post George, George Floyd, I want to friggin' scream. There's no post right. anything. Right. There's no post anything. There's nothing to celebrate. I understand we have to find hope and celebration somewhere. But as I told this group of doctors that I taught in a class last week, I'm relying on you to have the hope because I no longer have hope. I'm relying on faith. And, you know, the fact that I can get up every day and do what I do is, is all I got. It's all I got. It's time for people who look like you and positions like you to be as sick to death as, as I am of what's happening in front of our faces every day. Of the week. And it, it is sick. It's, it's gross. Like I tell people, I get in debates. I purposely seek out white people who don't agree with me, I seek them out because I want to have conversations and debates with them. And the number one thing I bring to them is, do you agree with the Constitution? And I do this by bringing up the Second Amendment because they'll always, hell yeah, Second Amendment, my constitutional rights, so great. So you're a constitutional, hell yeah, I'm a constitutional, I'm an American. Okay, great. So then, in that same Constitution, everybody has the right to a fair trial, yeah or nay, they do. So then do you agree with the cops stripping people of their right to a fair trial, right to life? Do you agree with the cops issuing the death penalty for crimes that don't even deserve the death penalty for people that haven't been committed or found guilty of a crime. Supposed to be innocent. Defunct. So, so once you start breaking that down, obviously they, they go with the what about isms and try to go around, but you, you can't. There's no escape in it. In this country, if you call yourself a patriot or you know you love America or any variation of that language, and you're okay with extrajudicial killings when cops murder civilians, then you're not a constitutionalist, you're not a patriot, you're a fucking fascist, you're nothing more. If we're gonna allow cops to strip you of your constitutional rights, remember that Patrick was pulled over because his license plate didn't match his car. There's a hundred, hundred rational explanations for that that don't involve nefarious activity. But let's just say it's because he stole the car or stole the tag. Okay, I still don't give a fuck. We still don't murder you. I still don't need to manhandle you. I still don't need to 
chase you down. There needs to be no foot chase. If you run, fine, run. I'm gonna, we're gonna find you eventually, and we're gonna, you know, charge you for stealing this car. Whatever. Because as an actual constitutionalist, I believe in people's right to a fair trial. Number one, I don't believe in the death penalty at all. But if we do have the death penalty, then it should be done fairly. The point is, if you believe in extrajudicial killings, that cops are the judge, jury, and executioner, and you think that's okay because somebody resisted or somebody might have stole the car or somebody used a counterfeit bill, if you believe in any of that, then you're an inhumane piece of shit. I'm sorry. You're not a patriot. You're not a person. You're not even a decent human being. You're bad. You're, you're evil. And so... How do you rationalize with people who I'm looking at this serial South Carolina rapist, 19 years old, handed probation and a plea deal? How do you how do you use that in your argument with them when it's so obvious, you know, crime while white has a different outcome than being. a yeah. It's also. Talk about that. It, it, there's so much to it that. There's so much to it. There's the people that, like you said, the serial rapists who got probation. There's Brock Turner who got six months and only served three of them. There's so many. There's Kim Potter who got two years, right? There is Amber Geiger who walked in somebody else's apartment, Botham Jean, say his name, who walked in Botham Jean's apartment and murdered him in his own apartment and got 10 years. And then we look at people that were arrested with drugs they get 120 years, 140 years, all these absurd, asinine sentences. And if you, if, if any human being cannot say, wait a minute, serial rape probation? Right. Rape behind a dumpster when a girl's unconscious, six months? Walking in somebody's apartment and shooting them and killing them, 10 years? If you can't look at that and then say, cocaine, 120 years? If you can't say, that's that's a problem, then you are a disgusting person. You're out of touch with reality and humanity. Because the fact is, drug sentencing was created to target black people. That's not a conspiracy. The Nixon administration, the Nixon administration openly admitted it. They openly admitted that they couldn't target the black liberation movement. They couldn't target the Black Panthers. They couldn't target Black America. So what they did was they targeted drugs and then convinced America that Black people did drugs. It's ironic because I did a video the other day and I was talking about the dog whistles in this country song. This country song kept talking about drug dealers and dope dealers. And I pointed out that they they use that language specifically because I'm talking about Black people. Because I grew up around these folk. I know how they talk. And a lot of people rebutted me by saying, well, no, you're wrong. And if you did your research, you would know that this song was made during the 80s when the crack epidemic was the biggest problem in America. And who does more crack than anybody? Black people. Here's the irony of it. The crack epidemic was never a real thing that was made up. And crack is just another form of cocaine. If we look at cocaine use, white people, whoo, they just, they hands down use way more cocaine and crack than any black person. So the fact that you said that to me means that you've bought into the systemic propaganda that was put out to make you think that black people are out doing crack in hordes, and that's the biggest problem in America, so we got to arrest them. Like, dude, it, the, the irony is that you think you're right because you fell for it. So when I tell you that you fell for it, you're not listening. Look, this is, look, you and I could go on for hours about this. You know, this is all just recently happening. I mean, you know, the fact that they're still talking about Will Smith when all of this has happened. The fact that they're still talking about Oscar so white and 
the garbage that happens in the celebrity world uh, when this kind of real, real shit is happening to people is both mind boggling and disgusting at the same time. And it makes me wonder where the. And so it seems like the louder we get about murder by police, the less there is to be done about it or the less they're doing about it. What what do you think about? I mean, there's this feeling of futility sometimes as a person who wants to change the system as the person who wants to, because my desires in America are not just, I don't want to just be an activist. I never even used that word until really, but everybody started using it. So I just use it, but you know, my desire is not just to speak up, be loud. My, my desire is truly to witness groundbreaking revolutionary change in this country, because as you pointed out earlier, the system's not broken. It's working exactly the way it was intended. So without revolutionary change, nothing changes. And so sometimes, and I travel to a lot of cities and I meet a lot of families of terrorism and I'm involved in a lot of protests and rallies and I do a lot of stuff on social media. I'm a part of a thousand Zoom calls talking about this stuff. And sometimes, actually a lot, you hang up from all the Zoom calls and all the rallies and you're, and you're by yourself and you're in your house and you just think to yourself, like, this shit's impossible. You think to yourself, like, the amount of revolutionary change that must happen is going to require all these dumb people that don't even want to get on board with it even being a problem to be on board. And so, like, there's this uphill battle of getting 65% of white America to even see the problem. But then, but then, in my darkest moment, when I'm having those what is futility thoughts, I think to myself, I'll just scream louder. I'll just fight harder. I'll just get more people. My whole thing is I'm going and you're coming with me willingly or unwillingly. My whole thing is that 65% of white America who don't even want to recognize the problem, I'm over caring. My whole thing is if we get enough people in enough places, then the change is coming. Like that Sam Cooke song, change is coming. And it's unfortunate. Change could happen faster. Change could happen far faster if more people would recognize the problem and become a part of the solution. But because they're not, it's a battle. And so to all the other activists and people in this fight out there that feel that way, just know you're not alone. There's a, I mean, I feel that all the time. Like, man, this is futile. But then I just decide it's not futile and I'll be damned. I got five children and I'm not passing this fight to them. I'm not. It can be done and it's going to be done. And, and like you said, the louder we talk about it, the, loud, the, the more visibility we give it, the more it's going to be stopped. Cameron Lamb, the cop that murdered Cameron Lamb in Kansas City, Kansas, was the history of the state to ever be found guilty of murder. Ever. The first cop to ever be prosecuted. George Floyd, that was monumental, right, in terms of prosecution. So the louder we get and the more, the more this movement continues, because it's a movement, it's not a moment, then the more we're going to see change. And unfortunately, the change is slow because a lot of people don't want to get on board. But people like me and people like you and people across America, we're not giving up. Not an option. It's a matter of uh, life and death, quite literally. And, you know, I, I just want to add one other thing before we shift to your to where everybody can find you, which is, you know, as long as these police unions and, and qualified immunity exist, the more challenging this battle is, because when the people can stop paying 
for the costs to murder by police is when change will truly happen. When the police have to pay for what they're doing. And I'm not just talking in terms of justice. I'm talking about financially. You know, that's where you get people. It's all about economics in this country. Capitalism and white supremacy, you know, they're bred together. One cannot exist without the other. And so that's how we have to hit people is economically. It's economic impairment that affects change. So you said all there is to say for today. I appreciate you, your time. Appreciate what you're doing out there. And I want to know, I mean, look, I believe everybody knows where to find you, but why don't you hand it all out again? Yeah, sure. On TikTok and Instagram, I'm jolly underscore good underscore ginger. And on Twitter, I'm just jolly good ginger. But if Elon Musk buys Twitter, I'm getting off there. <laughs> I'm planning to do some YouTube stuff here coming soon to do longer educational videos. I think they're necessary. But I thank you guys for having me on. I thank you guys for having this conversation. And I, I watch your podcast. I watch all the time when you post them. I love your podcast. So thanks for having me on. And thanks for the, the always informative conversation. And please, anybody who's listening, uh, help us save Melissa Lucio. And if you're in Grand Rapids, we'll be there shortly for protests. So the fight goes on. Excellent. And I just want to ask you one more question, which is, I think I know the answer, but let's have you say it. How do you want to be changing the narratives five years from now? I want to talk more about solutions and less about the problem. I'm tired of debating people about the problem that is quantifiably statistically or evidence to be true. And I, and I want us to talk about solution. If everybody was debating solutions and nobody was debating problems, we'd solve them all. Perfect place to end. Thanks a lot. Russell, Jolly Good Ginger, I always appreciate how you come at things. And it's just helpful to, the more people who are talking about it, the better, and the more action we take, the better. And let's save Melissa. This is uh, yet another unjust um, occurrence that's about to happen. So thanks for your time. Thank you, J.D. J.D. and I want to thank our fabulous producers at IM Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IMMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know.